Well, I want to wish you a happy birthday. It is Compass Bible Church's 17th birthday today. Happy birthday. It is so cool to be part of a church like this that loves the gospel, loves promoting God's word, and sending churches all across the country, Lord willing, to, to repeat that same process. In fact, you know most of the pastors are gone right now at the National Equip Conference, and we're praying for them, and they're going to wrap it up today as Pastor Mike preaches two more times uh, for Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley. So God's doing great things at our church. So exciting to be part of this, and it is something that we can all share. It's a birthday party that we can all celebrate. So have some cake today. As part of our birthday celebration, uh, you are encouraged to do that. Well, speaking of birthdays, uh, my, my oldest son recently celebrated a birthday, and one of the unique things about him, we have a teenager now, that's new for us, we have a teenager in our home, and one of the unique things about my son, uh, I guess not too unique, he loves baseball, as a lot of young guys do, and so he's been playing for years, and so one of his birthday presents is we're going to go to an angel game. Um, go angels, I guess, yeah, <laughs> go angels. Uh, we're going to go to the Angel game. And I was looking at the you know, forecast, and I'm kind of hoping that it doesn't rain, although I wouldn't mind because I'm not a big fan of baseball. So hoping it doesn't rain, but if it does, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. You have to find something else to do, I guess. But it, no matter what, no one likes a rain out. And I guess that happens on occasion, sometimes even in California every now and then. And for my oldest son, he's experienced a few rainouts, and that's a big bummer. You know, he's in Little League, and so he shows up to the game, or he wants to show up to the game. He's ready. He's been practicing. And then they call off the game because the field is wet. Well, this happens all over the place. And it happened in Northfield, Connecticut. Coaches and the team show up to a field expecting to play some ball, and they realize the field is soaked, drenched. And so somebody has a great idea. In this report, it says that someone suggested that they douse the field with gasoline and light it on fire, quicken the process of drying. I remember reading in the article, it was an old article, but I remember reading, someone had said, yeah, I tried that before, and it worked great. <laughs> okay, so they did it. <laughs> Needless to say, the shortcut did not work, because not only did the fire not do what it was intended to do, but yeah, the authorities come over, they had to dig up the dirt in order to remove the contaminated dirt, and they postponed the game for weeks on, and it was just it was a big train wreck, all because they tried to shortcut the process of drying. Now, we all kind of know by this point in our lives that shortcuts often don't work the way that we hope for. In fact, most good things in our lives don't allow for shortcuts. If you want to have a thriving marriage, shortcuts don't work. There's no life hacks to, to, to have a thriving marriage. It takes discipline. It takes work. It takes effort. If you want to have field expertise, you want to be well-known in your industry for being knowledgeable and expert in your field, that's going to take discipline effort, a lifetime of work and labor to grow in this area. Shortcuts often don't work. Shortcuts don't work not only in the practical things of our lives or our relationships, but they also don't work when it comes to the most important aspects of our lives. Shortcuts don't work when it comes to growing in godliness. In fact, I know for a fact that everyone who calls himself a Christian wants this. They want godliness. We want to look more like Jesus, as we just sang. We want to have the quality of godliness when people think about us. And in fact, when you think about the last day of your life, you don't want people to talk about how great you were at this or that, some in nonsensical or some kind of insignificant thing. You want them to say, well, she was a godly mother. She loved Jesus and she loved people. He was the godliest man I knew. He was the kind of guy that lived by conviction and by the power of the Spirit. He was so godly. Don't you want that? course you do. Well, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to growing in godliness and trying to take some kind of life hack approach to your spiritual life. Maybe there's some value in that, but there's often going to be a short circuiting of the process when you try to shortcut the process. And therefore, what I want to encourage you with this morning is to pursue your godliness in a new and fresh way with the mentality of disciplined and faithful effort. That's what scripture calls us to. And in fact, when we look at our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to see how Paul instructs his young protege about how to do this. It's short. It's just a few verses. But what's packed in those few verses is a lot of truth that can help all of us understand the value of godliness and how to approach it. And so in this morning's text, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we're going to look at 
how to pursue godliness. We're going to see what not to do, what to do, and then how to think about it. What not to do, what to do, and how to think about it. And I promise you, as you think about putting this to work in your own life or renewing your commitments or, or finding new ways to improve your approach to godliness, this can be life-transforming for you. Literally no part of your life, and this is not hyperbole, no part of your life that is touched by your godliness will be negatively impacted. Well, in an ultimate sense, I should qualify that. Your life has nothing to do but gain from your godliness. And so if you want to grow in godliness, you must train for godliness. Join with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we see this unfolded in the book of 1 Timothy. Now, again, just to remind you, Paul is writing to his young protégés, his young pastor Timothy. Timothy's pastoring at the church in Ephesus, and now Paul writes this letter in the early 60s, giving him instructions about how to run the church. And so Paul is telling him, look, he's giving him charges. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you to, t- to have these people who are teaching this different doctrine. Don't let them teach this. Don't let them devote themselves to these myths. Don't let them engage the congregation with these false teachings. And so he charges Timothy, don't let that happen. Instead, I want you to install elders or pastors. I want you to install deacons. And here's the qualifications of what a godly deacon and a godly elder should look like. And I want you to put these people in, as overseers in the church so that we have a model of what godliness should look like on display. And then he turns to Timothy and says, you in particular, Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, I want you to uh, have a life that contradicts the life of the false teachers at Ephesus. I want you to look different by the way that you live. And he starts off in verse 7 by telling Timothy not to do something. It's just surprising, given the fact that he's a a pastor and a teacher. What he says is a surprising thing. Look at verse 7 with me. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, instead of that, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, there's something good there, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, the here and now, and also for the life to come, the there and then. And if Paul couldn't emphasize it enough, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Highlight, underline, bold, that's what he's basically doing with that sentence there. Verse 10, for to this end, toward godliness, we toil and strive, we work hard at this, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. There you have it in a nutshell. It's potent and powerful verses that give us insight about how to approach something that can fundamentally change and improve our lives. It's something that I know that all of you want as Christians. But he starts with Timothy saying, look, I don't want you to have anything to do with these irreverent, silly myths. And again, it's, it's interesting, right? Because he's a pastor. You'd expect him to say, Timothy, know the false teaching and then destroy the false teaching. Undermine what they say by preaching the truth of God's word. And certainly Paul calls him to do that on different occasions for different reasons. But in this case, he's like, don't even spend time with that. Notice the adjectives that Paul uses to describe the myths. They're irreverent and they're silly. Irreverent. It gives you this connotation that he's, the, the, the myth itself, whatever these false teachers are teaching, were undermining holiness. They were undermining a reverence for God. They were the opposite of things that encourage godliness. They encourage ungodliness. And then he uses this word for silly, silly myths, uh, silly, uh, nonsensical. It's not fit for you to even consider or think about. It's not something that you should spend your time on. It's a waste of time, Timothy. These myths, whatever they were, whatever these Ephesian false teachers were teaching, apparently had some kind of, uh, some, some kind of traction with the people because he's saying, hey, show the people how to respond to this by not even touching it. I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to listen to the latest sermon by so-and-so because it's not worth my time. I'd rather concern myself with better things. Have nothing to do with these irreverent and silly myths. And that word have nothing is a powerful word. It's a strong word. It is an imperative to Timothy saying, don't do it. Refuse is another way to translate this. And that's how it's translated in a few other verses. Refuse it. Don't touch it. Paul charged Timothy to have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. From this text, we're going to derive our first principle of approaching godliness so that we can be fit for the kingdom of God. We can grow in our holiness and radiate Christ. And the first thing is actually not something to do. It's something not to do. As you see here in 1 Timothy 7, 
24-7, Paul encourages him, don't touch that, don't spend time with that, not worth your effort, not worth your time. And for you, Christian, you and I, you may not be a pastor, church, uh, pastoring a church at Ephesus, but I can tell you as a congregant, this is just as much for you as it was for Timothy because he was modeling for the church what it was to be a godly man. Therefore, one of the principles we can extract from this, I put it like this in point number one, we ought to learn to discriminate against worthless pursuits. That's a strong word, discriminates. That means we're examining our life in such a way where we're deliberately saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend time with that thing because it's not going to contribute to my growth and godliness. It's not going to support my long-term goals and efforts. I'm going to discriminate against that activity. Worthless pursuits. When I was a young man... (laughs) Uh, cool thing in my day was pogs. You ever know, the, you know pog? Pog, old school, you know, a little cardboard, and, and you get slammers, right? You get a, a piece of metal, circular-shaped metal, and then you hit the cardboard, and if they turned over, you won the, the pog. And so you compete with other people. It was basically youth-sanctioned game, gambling for kids. You know, that's what we did. We exchanged pogs, and we had this great time, and just hit them, and they turned over. It was fantastic. I loved it. I've never seen a pog. I mean, for years now, I haven't seen one. It's been such a long time, but I'd love to see that if you have one. Uh, anyway, in my heart and mind, there was this set of pogs that I desperately wanted. They, I don't even know how I, how I came across them, but I do know how much they cost. They were limited edition Wayne Gretzky pogs. They had his image on, I don't know, four or five pogs, and they were, it was him in different like athletic positions, showing off his his athletic ability, and it was cool. As a youth, I was enamored. L.A. Kings, Wayne Gretzky, I'm like, yeah. Did I ever watch hockey? No, but it didn't matter. <laughs> I liked that. I liked Wayne Gretzky. It was a cool thing to do, so I wanted them. Well, it turns out the Pogs costed a small fortune. In fact, way outside my price range as an elementary school kid, they were costed $500. Limited edition, after all, so you expect them to have some kind of value. Well, I looked, at, I looked up those pogs recently, just, just to see if I was able to scrounge up at $500 from the change in my, in my couch and working, you know, cutting mowing lawns, what would I have gained from those pogs? I think I found them. And if I were to buy them today, which I still might, they're $1.88. <laughs> That's a poor investment, if you ask me. A very poor investment. I mean, and that's silly. I mean, pogs, but there's other things that kind of fit in that category. And, and Beanie Babies, remember Beanie Babies used to be all the rage. People would buy countless Happy Meals to get all the different limited edition Beanie Babies. Pez dispensers, I know that's still kind of a thing. Some people are really into that. Precious Moments figurines, there's things that all of us kind of, oh yeah, that category of stuff that we collect. But here's the thing that I want to point out to you. Some things that are really valuable to us now may not be all that valuable to us later on. And we might look back at the end of our lives, or maybe we're in, a, in a moment of reflection and serious consideration, we might look back and say, man, I wonder why I spent so much time on that. I really enjoyed it. It was helpful, and it helped me relieve some stress and anxiety, perhaps, and I found some, you know, some temporary value out of that, but maybe it wasn't the best use of my time. Now, I'm not saying that we should, in all of our lives, just not do anything except work and memorize the Bible, but I am saying that there are some things that you're doing right now that would benefit from you not doing them, or at least doing less of it, to consider your life as it stands today and say, is there anything on my schedule, things that I typically do, maybe out of habit at this point, that if I stopped doing that, my godliness would grow and improve? I'm going to give you two reasons why this is important, both from the text. We're going to discriminate against worthless pursuits. The first thing we ought to consider here is when Paul says, look, he says, have nothing to do have nothing to do. Why? Because it doesn't produce the kind of godliness that Paul wants to see in Timothy. The first reason we should discriminate against worthless pursuits is because our stewardship demands it. Our stewardship demands it. Paul is told not to have anything to do with that because he's got a bigger task, a better job to do. He's got more on the table that needs his attention that's going to be a better use of his time and pastoral leadership. Heard this uh, I read this illustration about how someone asked this Carnegie Hall concert violinist how she became so skilled at what she did. She seemed to play so effortlessly and play so beautifully, playing technical pieces with great precision and excellence, making that thing sound amazing. And so someone said, how do you do that? You must be so talented. They responded back, she responded back, or quoted as saying, she did this, she became so skilled through the means of planned neglect. 
That is, she planned to neglect everything that was not related to her growing in her musical abilities. And Christian, there's things for our lives, especially all the more so. We're not just trying to become great musicians. We're trying to become great Christians. There's things in your life where maybe plan neglect is a better option than, than giving it the time and attention that you currently do. You have limited resources. Of the most precious resources that you have, your life, which is fleeting and a vapor, James says in 4.14, that's the one that God has said, I want you to give me a return on this investment. It reminds me of Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Let me summarize this for you. Matthew 25 you have Jesus describing the kingdom of God as a man who goes on a journey, and he entrusts three servants with three different amounts of resource. He gives the first one five talents, the second one two talents, and the third one he gives one talent. And you know the story. He goes away for a long time, and then he comes back to settle his accounts with his servants. The one who had five says, Master, you gave me five. Here's ten. Master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful in little. You'll be faithful in much. Here's more. The second one has two talents. He returns four. Master says the same thing. The third servant, you know, this one doesn't do as good a job. Instead of doing something with the talent, he goes and hides it under his mattress, and he sleeps on it. He doesn't touch it. And then he finally comes back to the master. The master comes to this, this person, and he says this in verse uh, 24. Matthew 25, verse 24, he says, He who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you go. Here's what's yours. But the master answers him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to at least, it seems to say, suggest here, at least invest my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own plus interest. My, my point in bringing that up here is to demonstrate to you the serious, sober-minded principle of our stewardship. Meaning there's aspects of your life, in fact, I'm going to just take that back, the totality of your life, if you're in Christ, belongs to Christ. Everything that you are, Everything that you choose to do with your time belongs to Christ. And that means every way that you spend your time should be, in, in some form or another, a form of worship. I'm going to rest to the glory of God. I'm going to watch I Love Lucy to the glory of God. I'm going to play my keyboard or my piano, my, my, my guitar to the glory of God. You can do those things to the glory of God, and you should because you're a steward. You don't belong to. You belong to Christ. And therefore, every aspect of your life is meant to be lived out in subjection to him, willingly and joyfully. And that's what your stewardship demands. Psalm 119, verse 37, the psalmist prays, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Don't let me give my attention to that which is going to undermine my life. I don't want worthless things to fill my head and my heart. Think about this. Has there ever been a time in your life where you heard a song or you saw a movie scene that scarred you for the rest of your life? I mean, for some of you, you saw a movie and now you hate clowns. I mean, some of you saw a movie when you were young and now you're terrified about a certain thing or you have these apprehensions about, you know, whatever. Or you heard a song and you heard that song 20 years ago and it's still stuck in your head and you hate it. Lyrics won't leave. In the middle of the night, you find yourself humming that song and now you, now you want to donate all your cars to kids. <laughs> the one is <laughs> stuck forever. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Our stewardship demands it. We don't want to give ourselves willy-nilly to anything and everything. I read a book not too long ago by um, this secular author who is kind of a philosopher about time management and how to, how to live your life to the fullest, and he identifies a problem for us. He says, look, your issue, our issue here, he says, is that you live your life for the wrong reason. You live your life with the wrong mentality. You put far too much pressure on yourself, which is why you always feel busy and frazzled and you're always running from place to place and you just can't get the rest that you need. He says, your problem is that you think of your life incorrectly. You put too much emphasis on it. You put too much value on this life. Here's what he says. He says, this is the liberating truth, that what you do with your life doesn't matter all that much. And when it comes to how you're using your finite time, the universe absolutely could not care less. Your life doesn't matter. 
Spend it however you want. And stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Take a break. Go on a vacation. Because it doesn't matter. The universe doesn't care what you do with your time. That is profoundly wrong. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Because, see, Christian, we know that the truth of the matter is that our life is profoundly significant. Your actions do matter. What you allow to enter your heart and head does matter. What you allow yourself to listen to, to sing, to, to, uh, to recite, those things matter. Well, because we have a stewardship. God has purchased us, purchased us through the cost of his son, and we now belong to him, and that means everything we do is pregnant with significance. Everything we do takes on a whole new layer of import because we're doing it for God's glory. And the time that we have is a gift meant to be stewarded properly. So what kind of activities are you spending your time on that could easily be removed to make time for better things? I'm not saying you have to throw out your hobbies. I have hobbies. I'm not saying you have to stop collecting precious moments if that's what you do. It's a silly illustration, but the point is I want you to consider your life as it stands today and say, is there anything that I could just not do and make time for better, godlier things? If we're going to discriminate against worthless pursuits, we need to do that recognizing that we have a stewardship that demands it. But the second reason is not only does our stewardship demand it, demand it, demand it our sanctification requires it. Irreverent, silly myths undermine your godly desires. That's going to counteract your desire for sanctification. Which is why Scripture says things like this. Proverbs 4.23. Scripture says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That word for keep your heart, guard, protect, keep a close watch on. If you have a baby in your house, I'm guessing you guard and protect that baby. You might have the nanny cam, and, you might, and that nanny cam has the baby's body temperature and breathing rates, and you, you, you focus your attention on that baby to make sure nothing happens to that baby. You guard and protect it. You keep that baby. You should do that. The same mentality should be applied to the way that you guard your heart. You are to keep your heart sanctified, protected against worldly influence. And you can see how this one easily relates to our last subpoint. But our sanctification requires that we guard our hearts in a way that is always vigilant. Do you think that the world is looking at you and saying, let me see how I can encourage a Christian to grow in godliness? Let's turn on Netflix and see how we can grow in godliness today. The world is not on your side. The world, the flesh, and the devil are three enemies that work against your desire for godliness. And your job is to fortify your heart. And I, I'm using my chest here, but the heart in the Hebrew concept represented the whole person. To guard yourself, to protect, to, like, a, like a firewall against negative, ungodly influences. What are those influences in your life? Have they made their way into your home unawares? Maybe something that has the designation family-friendly isn't so family-friendly after all. I remember having that realization when I was watching this movie with my family. It was Netflix, and I'm like, oh, look, here's a kid. I go to the kid's section because I want to see something with a family. Turn it on, we're watching it. I think I made it 10 or 15 minutes through the movie, and I'm like, I just can't do this. I can't do it. I'm going to turn this off because this is bringing something into my home that is influencing and leaving an impression on my young hearts. And frankly, I don't want nothing to do with that. So I turned it off. And I saved some time. And I guarded my family's heart. Discriminated against that worthless pursuit. It's not just worthless. I guess it's destructive. It undermines. James 1.27, he tells the Christians to keep themselves unstained from the world. That's what religion is. Pure and defiled religion before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Protect, guard, keep yourself. I'm guessing for everyone here, not everybody has a key to your house, right? You don't just hand out your house key willy-nilly, supposing. Not everybody has a key to your house, and not everybody should have the key to your heart. You need to protect your heart and guard it against the influences that will undermine and subvert your godliness. What I'd like you to do at this point is to audit your life and consider the various inputs, you know, the books, the movies, the podcasts you listen to, and ask whether 
it could be something that you say, you know, I'm not going to do that. Instead of spending time listening to that podcast, I'm going to uh, listen to this sermon podcast instead because I know that's going to help me uh, direct my heart and attention to God. I don't know. Maybe you like listening to music in the morning, and instead of listening to your favorite artist who is, you know, so-and-so, you, you, know, you listen to some scripture songs that help you memorize God's word while taking a shower or something. Small things like that. It's choosing not to do certain things, and that's really where this point comes in for a landing here have nothing to do with irreverent silliness, have nothing to do with things that are a worthless pursuit in your life. What not to do, what to do, and how to think about it. We now move on to the second portion here in verses 7 through 9 where Paul instructs Timothy, now that I've left the vacuum or the void of telling you what not to do, let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you what to do instead of that. And this is where the thrust of the sermon comes in. In the second half of verse 7, he says, rather train yourself for godliness. Train it's an imperative. It, okay, so the imperative. It has commanding force on us. He's commanding Timothy, do this. Don't do that. Train yourself for godliness. And, he, and, and that word for train is where we get the, we, we, it's translated discipline yourself. Undergo discipline. And the word in the Greek is where we get the word gymnasium from to give you a sense of what, what it means. To work out, to sweat, to labor at this thing. Train yourself. Well, train yourself for what? And by the way, the word, the word that he uses, train, uh, and this is why the, the sermon title is as it is, the word for train refers to a physical training. It's the kind of thing, that's the word that they would use to describe their training in the actual gymnasium of the time. So he says he applies that word to godliness. Train yourself for godliness. What is godliness? I guess we should quickly define that. The, the word itself um, means to be devout. It's a good devoutness. It reflects a posture, an inner posture, and an attitude toward God that gives him awesome respect. He has a place in my life and my heart that it commands everything else I do. Because I fear, love, and trust God, the rest of my life seeks to continue to bend into conformity to what Christ wants for me. That's what it means to be godly, to have your entire life subjected to him in willful obedience to his kingship. To be godly. It's a whole life kind of word here. It's not relegated to my knowledge. It's not relegated only to my feelings. It's a holistic whole life kind of word. Calvin wrote this. He says, true piety consists in a piety, another word for godliness, consists in a pure and true zeal which loves God altogether, reveres him truly as Lord, embraces his justice, and dreads to offend him more than to die. That's godliness in a nutshell. And so Paul instructs Timothy, look, train yourself for godliness. And then he says in verses 8 through 9, for, look, training your body is great. There's some value in that. That's fantastic. It's of some value. However, godliness is of value in every way. This is going to be an important. We're going to come back to that in a second. It's of value in every way. It holds promise for this life here and now. It's got practical value immediately. You put this into practice today, there's value for your lunchtime or value for your late breakfast. It's got promise for the present life, the here and now, and also for the life to come. You choke on your lunch and you end up going to heaven, your, your godliness improves your heaven experience too. Everything is benefited by your godliness. Verse 9, in order to emphasize this, Paul says this saying is trustworthy. You can take this to the bank, Christian. Bank on this truth. It's trustworthy and it deserves all your acceptance. It's not something that you should casually say, oh, I, I like that, I'll keep that. No, it deserves your full, unmitigated acceptance. Paul's calling us as Christians to do what you and I really want to do. We want to grow in godliness. We want to look like Jesus. And therefore, he says, first of all, don't do this, but do this instead. And every single word of my next point is intentional. I want you, point number two, to invest disciplined effort toward godliness. Invest disciplined effort toward godliness. And I think that well captures and summarizes what we're reading here in these few verses. And that's what Paul is calling Timothy to do, to invest this kind of disciplined effort toward growing in godliness. Now, if I mention the, na the name to you, John Williams, a few of you will know who that is. John Williams. Some of you may not know his name, but I guarantee you know his music. John Williams has had a prolific musical career. His music, uh, he, he does film scores that no doubt you, under, you would understand. For instance, one of the most famous musical scores, da-na, da-na, da-na. What is that one? Jaws. Classic. You can't mistake that, right? That's John Williams. Uh, if you know the original Superman theme song, 
uh, which is not coming to me right now, but you know that one. Uh, that's John Williams as well. Star Wars. Anyone like the Star Wars soundtrack? That's John Williams. I mean, this guy has done Jurassic Park. He's done everything. Some of the most renowned and recognizable music in the industry and most awarded is John Williams. Now, I love learning about high-performing people. I wanna, how did you do that? Because I want to be the best pastor I can possibly be. I want to be the best Christian I could be. John, what did you do differently? And that's what somebody asked him. And of course, we all want to know that, right? How did you accomplish such great feats of musical heights? And here's what John had to say, John Williams. He says, I developed from a very early on a habit, one might say a discipline, of writing something every day, good or bad. There are good days and there are less good days, but I do a certain amount of pages before I can feel like the day has been completely served. Day in and day out, John says, I am all about writing music. Every day of my life, I commit to writing music. Some days are better, some days are worse, but I write. He disciplines himself. He has disciplined effort toward musical greatness. Well, what about writer's block, John? Don't you have bad days where you just don't want to do it? You're having a hard time, so you just stop writing? Here's what he said. I never experienced anything like a block. For me, if I'm ever blocked or I feel like I don't quite know where to go at the next turn, the best thing for me is to just keep writing, to write something. See, John Williams applied disciplined effort toward musical greatness, and he succeeded. We apply disciplined effort toward godliness, and we too shall succeed. This is our birthright. This is what God has saved us for. This is what God has made you for, to reflect his image and his glory. Growing in godliness, however, requires training godliness. It requires us to approach it with the right mentality, not blasé, not hoping that it happens to us, but rather approaching it with the right mentality of saying, I've got to work toward this. Three reasons why from this text here, from verses 7, 8, and 9. The first reason comes from the first part, second part of verse 7. It's just a small observation. Train yourself for godliness. I, I want to make the observation to you. We need to pursue it this way because godliness isn't automatic. It doesn't happen by itself. And the, the way that I know that is because the text tells me I have to train for it. That's a simple observation. If I have to train for it, that tells me it's not going to just happen to me. I'm not going to be ready to run the marathon if I just sit on my couch and watch marathoners and listen to people talk about marathons and tell them all the great strategies. No, I have to, I have to run to train for that. And even though I have the best marathon teacher in the world who's broadcast all over the world about his marathon techniques, I'm never going to improve upon my running until I start running, until I start applying the techniques. And so I want you to understand that godliness isn't automatic. Now, a lot of things are automatic, and that's great. Um, I have toothpaste on automatic delivery. It's wonderful. Never, I never thought I'd say that, but that's, the, that's great. I love automation. I'm all about automation. I, I love writing shortcuts on my, my iPad and my phone and my computer so that I can not have to do as much typing. But automation can only take us so far. And sometimes automation can accidentally teach us that, uh, that, that we can easily get good things without exerting much effort. I can expect good things to happen without me having to move myself. And that's problematic for the Christian. The reason why is because Scripture tells us to train ourselves. It's not going to happen to you. If you're in Christ, here's what I know about you. If you are in Christ, you have a spirit birthed hunger and thirst for what's, what is it? Righteousness. You have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the same way that when you have a baby, that baby hungers and thirsts for mother's milk. Baby wants to be fed, and so he cries, and she won't, she won't stop until she gets what she needs. In the same way Christians have been given, by birth of our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we've been given a desire for righteousness. And God wants to fill that. God wants to meet that need, but he wants us to pursue that through our effort. It's not going to happen to us. We work for it. Now, where's the Holy Spirit in this, Pastor Rod? It sounds like we just, this is all work, work, work. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is the one who's orchestrating all of this. And in fact, the second reason that you need to invest discipline effort is because godliness is obtained by deliberate practice. Godliness is obtained by deliberate practice. And in fact, to finish the thought here, where's the Holy Spirit in this? Philippians 2.13. I like the way that one translation puts it. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God implants within you the desire to pursue godliness. If you want godliness, it's because he's drawing you. He's calling. He's compelling you, saying, 
son, daughter, be more righteous. And, you're, and, and your side say, yes, I want that. The, the will, the desire, and the effort that goes into it is God. God gives you the desire. God gives you the will to complete the desire. That's not you. That's God working through you. But you are, make no mistake, a partner with God in your obedience to that willful desire. Godliness is obtained by deliberate practice. It requires us to, com- to uh, cooperate with God in practicing growing in righteousness. And really, it's a matter of exercising self-control. I don't know, that's a, and that's a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Let us not forget. Dr. Don Whitney, we had him recently teach here at CBI, and I had the chance to host him and take him all around. And um, we had dinner with him several times and several meals. It was great. He wrote a book that has forever impacted me and changed my life. The book was called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, he's a wonderful man. His, whole, his entire life is characterized by godliness. I mean, just disciplined. He's disciplined. His, his, his demeanor, disciplined. Um, I noticed that. As I drove him around in my, my little Honda, I was just impressed by the guy. Um, came to also find out he really loves fountain pens, and he got me hooked on that, and now I try to do the fountain pen thing. I'm a novice, but it's, it's a great deal of fun. One of the things that he wrote in his book, he says, occasional self-control results in occasional godliness. Occasional self-control results in occasional godliness. Godliness is obtained by deliberate practice. And often what that means is that we just have to understand that the work of the Spirit in your life is mundane in many respects. It's us being willing to put in the practice to get better at being godly. Now think about this. I don't know how old you were when you got saved, but you had X amount of years, however old you were when you got saved, you had that many years to practice ungodliness. However old you were, you had that many years to practice ungodliness. Now, in Christ, your job is to practice the opposite, to practice being in Christ, to act like Christ, to live like Christ, to think, feel, and do like Christ. That's a habit of godliness that you can put into practice right now, that you can start uh, applying to your life. Your job is to identify those things that need that practice and address that day by day to the point where you want it to become part of who you are. It becomes almost semi un subconscious. And just like when you, sometimes you drive home, uh, you know, you, you're thinking about something and you realize when you pull into the driveway, you don't realize how, how you got home. Like, oh man, time warp. How did I get here? And if you think about the very first time you learned how to drive, it was the exact opposite of that, wasn't it? When you first drove, all of your conscious awareness was on everything that you were trying to do. And it was overwhelming. Or if you're teaching your teenager how to drive right now, you realize, oh, this is terrifying. They're going to kill us all. How do we make sure? Because you're trying to help them you remember, you have to look at so much. You have to pay attention to the street lights and the people and your speed and your 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And then mom or dad on the side is saying, oh, don't do that. No, turn. No, put your blinker on. And then you're trying so much to and just take it all in that it's just, you kind of get paralysis. I don't know how we made it. <laughs> I don't know. But we learned. And it went from that to being overly aware and overwhelmed by the amount of inputs that you have to receive into now, we basically drive, we eat hot dogs, you know, send a text message. You shouldn't be doing that. You're doing different things in the car, writing emails, and doing all sorts of things. But could you imagine telling your 16-year-old self that you would be doing that all these years later? Like, you're crazy. This is absurd because there's so much going on here. You want to develop that kind of habit or practice in your growth of godliness, and it just takes ongoing effort to put off the old self and to put on the new self, to create habits. They could, be, they could work for you or against you. To create habits that work for you and help you progress in your life of discipline. Why? The third reason why we're going to invest discipline effort toward godliness, this is exciting here, the third reason comes from verses 8 and 9. The value of godliness The third reason is because godliness guarantees lifetime benefits. Godliness guarantees lifetime benefits. It has permanent value forever in eternity. God will reward you for the godliness that you pursue. And it has practical, immediate value right now. Talk about a high ROI, right? You want to invest your time in something. You invest it in godliness like like a domino effect. It's a domino that impacts everything else behind it for the good, for the better. Now, imagine this with me, or think about this. What part of your life would not be improved if you were godlier? 
What would not be positively impacted by your growing in godliness? Now, I'm only encouraging you to do something I know you want to do, so just ask yourself, how much better of a husband could I be if I were a godlier man? How much better of a mom could I be if I were a godlier mother, if I looked more like Christ when I woke up and went to bed, the stuff in between? How much better of an employer might I be if I had the fruit of the Spirit in abundance as I dealt with my employees? How much more would my church benefit if I were a godly man and I grew up to be a great and godly leader, a great HFG leader, a great small group leader? My HFG, they look up to me because I'm setting the example for them. I'm running at a speed that I want them to follow. It has benefits upon benefits. What family wouldn't be impacted by a, a mom and a dad, a husband and wife, seeking Christ together, to grow in godliness in a disciplined, consistent way, step by step, day by day? What family wouldn't be benefited by that? I mean, we could go on and on and on here. But just know, you, you have something ahead of you that God says, look, this is what you're made for. I want this for you. This is your birthright as a Christian. You pursue this. There are benefits upon benefits upon benefits that you will enjoy. Might it invite persecution? Yes, and that's exactly what Paul says later on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring persecution. Those who de- desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I'm not saying that godliness makes the road easy for you, but it does make it good. Even in the suffering, you can still rejoice in who God is because you're realizing this world is not my home. My life is better. My life is improved because I'm godlier. So in your small group application questions, I really do have a modest goal. I, I, don't, I don't want you to walk away from this feeling like, hey, Pastor Rod said I need to do all these things now. I need to have all these disciplines in order. I'm going to spend 17 hours a day on my disciplines and growing God. I'm not saying that. I understand. You guys are busy. You have a lot going on. So I have a modest goal for you. I want you to look at your life and identify one thing, one thing that you think, I could do that. I can change that. I can improve in that area. I heard Pastor Mike say a couple days ago at a, at a staff lunch, he had an idea for somebody that I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. And it's simple. Summarize every chapter of the Bible that you read. Like, oh man, well, there's only ever like three or four chapters in DBR. That doesn't take much longer. What a cool idea. You think you're handling of scripture would be better? You think you'd have a better understanding of the flow of the text? I think you would. And it would be one small thing that you could do to help progress yourself in understanding God better and understanding who he is and what he's done for you. It's one way to improve upon your ability to serve Christ. Now, I guess I should be clear here. Um, When I say godliness, I don't only mean knowledge. I don't only mean knowledge. Uh, In fact, I would say don't confuse knowledge with godliness. Godliness requires knowledge But knowledge doesn't require godliness. It doesn't go both ways. To be a godly Christian, you must know God's word. You must know God. But to know God's word and to know all the theological concepts and to have strict orthodoxy does not confer godliness. It's not the same thing. Pharisees knew a lot of scripture. They had good theology, more or less, but it did not change them. So it can be with us as well, Compass, where we can know a lot about God. But that doesn't mean that we're godly necessarily. The result is going to make all the difference, or the response, rather. How we respond to God's word, whether we put it into action, whether we let it change and conform our hearts to his heart, whether we humbly submit to it and not let knowledge puff us up, as Paul says. So one thing, growing in knowledge is a good thing. I'm not discouraging that. I'm just saying don't confuse it. Pick one thing you can commit to improve upon in your pursuit of godliness. You know the areas, right? Your Bible reading, uh, your meditation, uh, meditation, your memorization, your prayer time. How can I improve my prayer time? Uh, maybe you're inconsistent with your prayer time. How about that one? You're inconsistent. You, you have days where you go seven days in a row and others where you're just like once every now and then. Hey, five minutes a day. Can you do that? Five minutes a day. Come rain or shine, no matter what happens, I can do five minutes every day. Maybe start there. You know, godliness, brick by brick, day by day, consistency. Bible reading, prayer time. Dads, maybe you want to start doing family worship with your family. You know, you want to. You've been wanting to. You've been convinced it's a good thing to do. Maybe now's the season to say, how can I make this happen? Ten minutes a day. We're going to do it. We'll figure it out. I guess on that note, I found a resource that I really enjoy if you're interested in doing family worship called godcenteredfamily.org. It's a helpful resource, easy. I think you'll enjoy it if that's your thing. Okay, what not to do, what to do, and now finally, 
how to think about it. We're not to give ourselves over to things that will undermine our godliness, worthless pursuits. We are to instead invest disciplined effort toward godliness. And now, this last part here, it's, it's pivotal because really this is the, the foundation from which our godliness grows. This is the seedbed. This is the, the cornerstone, if you will. This is the way that the entire edifice works. So pay close attention here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for to this end, and that end, by the way, he's referring back to godliness, for to this end, we toil and strive. We work really hard for this. Here's why. Because, because we have our hope set, fixed on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Toiling and striving. Toiling, engage in hard work. Difficulties, trouble. That's what the word implies in that's what the word, the connotation is. It's hard work. We toil and strive. The word strive is where we get the word agony from. I'm agonizing over this. I'm, I'm giving intense effort toward this. And so he says, look, this is, we toil and strive toward godliness. That's for, that, for this, and we do that because it's an expression of, it's an outgrowth of our hope set on the living God. We could say like this, hope is what gives birth to the strong effort. Our faith in God is what allows us to exert ourselves beyond what we think is our capacity. It's, it's the idea that because my hope is fixed on Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, I'm going to give my best and I'm going to fall short a million times over, but that doesn't matter because Christ is the one I'm trusting in. I'm not putting the trust in my efforts. I'm putting the trust in the living God, the one who is the Savior of all people. Now, of course, he's not saying here that everyone's going to be saved in the last day. He's saying that in a common grace kind of way, God is Savior to everybody. It's this idea that he helps anyone and everyone, indiscriminate of who they are or where they are on the planet. He gives sunshine, he gives rain, he gives food and shelter and water and clothing. He gives us all these things, and in that way, he is the Savior of all people. And that's fantastic. Everyone enjoys those common graces of God. But he says, but his special Special salvation is for a certain group of people. It is especially true for those who believe. Especially true for those who believe. And that belief, of course, is what we've been talking about this whole sermon. That belief has action-oriented results, but it's belief in him, trust in him. Your sanctification, your growth in godliness must be grounded upon his salvific work. God is Savior. We sing about it all the time, but sometimes it's easy for our hearts to kind of get disconnected from that truth. God is Savior, not us. Thanks be to God for that. God is Savior, not you. You want assurance in your faith. It must be grounded on Him, on God's faithfulness. Point number three, ground your assurance on God's faithfulness. Ground your assurance on God's faithfulness. Every time we talk about salvation and sanctification and disciplined effort, I always get nervous because I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. I don't want you to hear like, Christian, grab yourself by your bootstraps and get to it. Stop being lazy. Kick you in the pants. There is an element of hardworking response. But the foundation and the grounding is always and forevermore will be the gospel of Jesus Christ, his grace toward you. It's the season for graduations. Season, and I've had my fair share being the previous high school pastor, here, previous high school pastor, I've had my fair share of listening to a lot of high school speeches and you know, people, different people, distinguished people who give their thoughts about how the high school students should live their lives. Um, at first, it was entertaining. Like, oh, that's really funny they think that. And then it became just like, oh, this is awful. Why are you saying that? Someone's like, get out of there, it's my turn. Let me do this. I want to give me the mic. You don't deserve to speak. I'm going to sell you what you really need to do. It's, it's one of those things where you hear these people saying these things, and it's like, oh, this is what our culture believes. This is what is popular to embrace right now. Some of the phrases you might hear, be the change. Okay, well, okay, okay. Uh, follow your heart. Oof. Bad direction. Uh, live your dreams. Believe or trust in yourself. Be your authentic self. Speak your truth. And of course, these are all problematic for so many reasons, right? It's terrible, terrible advice. Follow your heart, believe in yourself. That's terrible. 
here's the reason why, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but some of the reasons why is that we're terrible gods. We're terrible gods. You can't tell me to trust myself. I'm an idiot. I'm going to do the wrong thing. I don't want to trust me. I need to trust Jesus. Jesus, in his word, tells me what I need to be doing in my life, tells me what I need to be thinking. And that's the way that we don't go wrong. That's the way that we stay grounded and faithful. I, I can't be trusted with that kind of weight. Neither can you. I guess I'm speaking on behalf of all of us. We just can't be trusted with that, young or old. Instead, our, our, our assurance in this life, our security, comes from who God is and what he's done for us. And the danger I want to avoid with you is that your obedience can become the foundation of your confidence before God. And that's not the goal here. I want you to have assurance uh, basic, based on two things from this text. Assurance based on two things. And they come from that whole verse 10. And Paul says, look, I, for this I toil and strive. Part of your assurance, part of it, is how am I doing in this? Am I growing in godliness? How am I doing in my private devotional life? Is it reflecting itself in my public display? Am I a man of integrity? Am I a woman of character? Am I the same person in private that I am in public? Is there a consistency in my life? Do I see God changing me for the better? That's, a, that's an important thing. And am I working toward that? Because Paul says, look, for this we toil and strive. Living faith has a living action associated with it. They, they go hand in hand. And so it's important for you as you think about your assurance to say, okay, do I see effort in my life? If I see no reading, no love for God, no love for his, his people, no love for prayer, then that's not a good sign. No effort in quiet timing, that's not a good sign. A good sign, part of it, is do I see consistency in my life? Not perfection, but I do see a constant direction toward Jesus Christ. I do love Jesus I love the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus of my imagination. Am I laboring toward godliness as Scripture defines it? That would be a good sign as you start looking at your life and reflecting on who you are. Second thing that you can look at in grounding your assurance is, of course, Paul says that we set our hope on the living God. Second thing you should think about is, am I trusting in God's work or am I trusting mine? Why do I do my Bible reading? Why, why do I pray? Why do I go to church? As best I can discern my own heart, am I doing this for God's glory? Or is this in some way related to my, my prestige, my reputation? Is there an, am I some way benefited selfishly by doing these things, going through these motions? And I guess the question I want to propose to you as you think about your assurance here is saying, do I do this because I love Jesus? Do I do this because I have my hope confidently grounded in who God is and what he's done for me on my behalf? He's my savior. I, I want to give him my life. I want to do that. You see, that hope is where everything else grows from, right? The, the grounding, the grounding of your salvation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm putting my hope in that. I trust him. He's alive. He's not dead. Jesus rose from the dead. He's crushed sin and death. He's done with that. He's currently at the right hand of God. And now from that place, now I want to grow. I want to become all that God desires for me to be. That's where that toil and strenuous effort comes from. Because he saved me. He bled for me. He died for me. That's a manly message. I know sometimes godliness can feel like, oh, this is for the ladies. Here we go. No, this is a manly message. Jesus died for my sin. He shed his blood. He was, he was torn to pieces for my sake. And man, if he's willing to do that for my, my behalf, I'm willing to do anything. Send me anywhere. I'll go. Not because I think you're going you're, you're gonna to bless me necessarily. I want to do whatever you want me to do. Out of path. I mean that. Send me to Texas? Okay. I'll do that. I prefer to be in California, but Texas is fine. I want to go. I do. But I never thought I would do that. It's always been in my mind, like, oh, I love California. I love Compass AV. This is my home. I'm going to die here. It'd be better if I even died preaching. That'd be great. <laughs> but when I put it on the line for God, God, I trust you. Whatever you, what do you want me to do? I felt compelled and pulled to what I thought was his will. I still think that's his will. Some of you guys have commented, all well, the weather and the animals, the bugs, and there's no mountain. Like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> what does Jesus want? I want to do what Jesus wants. And isn't that really all of our heartbeat? Christian, isn't that you? I want to do what Jesus wants. I want to do what he wants. Not because I'm trying to necessarily earn points. God will reward you for your obedience, but it's because I love him. My hope is grounded in him. 
And yeah, he might send us over here to North Texas and we might suffer and struggle for this, this, or that reason. But man, it's not about me. It's not about, I don't care. I'm doing this for Jesus. I want, I, my hope is in him, the growth of my life. I'm going to be uncomfortable. And I'm going to grow as a result of that. I know that. God's going to grow us because of that. Same thing is true for you. As you ground your assurance on God's faithfulness, you can be free to obey as mightily as you desire because your performance, your performance does not make you right before God. Christ's performance does. And then when you realize that, you're going to be you're able to say, like, oh, serve him freely. And I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm going to serve him with all that I have because he deserves it. I want to grow in godliness for his sake. I want to please him and honor him because I love him. Jesus says this in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has you. No one can change that. Not even you, Christian. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, he has you, not you. All of your life is one long expression of faith and obedience toward him. All the while trusting, he has me. He has me. He will hold me fast. You read this morning, if you're doing our DBR, abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me is another invitation. Trust me. Know that I got your back. Follow me. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Jesus invites you to rest in his work so that you might work in growing in godliness. Mm. Ground your assurance. God's faithfulness. If we're going to do this compass, if we're going to pursue holiness and godliness, we need to dig deep. It's going to, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. Taking the next level, whatever, wherever you are in the, in the pursuit of godliness, if you're going to take the next level starting this weekend, you're going to have to dig deep to make it happen. It's going to be costly. It's going to maybe be uncomfortable to create new habits, to stop doing something, to start doing something, and to have the right mindset about it. You're going to have to dig deep to make it happen. But let me tell you why it's worth it. The world right now is changing before us. The ground beneath our feet is shaking. Think about it. You just have to watch the news for three seconds and realize we are crazy. We've lost our minds. The world needs you to be godly. The world needs you to be different, to be distinct, to be righteous, to be truly righteous and not their, their contorted, twisted view of righteousness. They need you to reflect Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. They need you to possess the wisdom of godliness. They need you to show them the way. Because right now, blind people are their guides. The world needs you. Your workplace needs you. They need to see a godly person live their life authentically. Did I say perfectly? No, authentically. Your neighborhood needs you. They need to see a Christian who lives next to them who isn't a total nut job. They need to see a godly Christian leading a godly family. They need to see a godly representation of Jesus Christ. They want to, they want to see Jesus. And if they see that in you, man, wouldn't that be somewhat enticing? They'll either, it'll either be attracted or they'll be repulsed. Scripture tells us to expect both. But your neighbors need you to be godly. Your family needs you to be godly. Your family desperately needs your example. Your family needs you to know Jesus, to serve Jesus, to love Jesus, to talk about Jesus. Your family needs you to step up your game. And you know you want to and you know you can. Your church needs you to do this. Your church needs you to dig deep, to prepare for whatever awaits us in the future. And I don't know what that is. I don't pretend to be a prophet, but I do know times are changing. And our job is to be ready for that by being mentally equipped and prepared to dig deep toward godliness and to be ready for that future, whatever it is. While we say Maranatha, let us dig deep. I repeated the word dig several times. Did you catch that? Discriminate against worthless pursuits. I invest discipline effort toward godliness. G, ground your assurance on God's faithfulness. Dig. Silly, I know, but I thought it was helpful. Let me encourage you, Compass. This is our time. When it gets darkest, that's when the light is most visible, most palpable. Let's radiate godliness for the sake of Christ, glory of his name and the good of his people. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for 
this word of Scripture, and we pray that we would do our due diligence, that we would respond appropriately. I do pray that you would guard us against any foolish thinking, that we would ever ground our sanctification on ourselves, that we would ever uh, look at ourselves to be the primary uh, mover in our relationship with you. We want to know that you are the one who works good things in us. You are the one who is the foundation of our godliness. We want to trust that. We want to have the gospel radiate deeply within us in order that we would pursue sanctification, godliness, appropriately, toiling and striving. Help us to keep all these things clear in our minds, God. Help us to remember what not to do, what to do, and the way to think about it as we walk away. Let there be changes made today, this weekend, that continue on for years to come so that you might be honored through our lives, Lord. We love you, and we are so thankful to you for the salvation that you've accomplished in us. May you glorify yourself in our obedience to your message today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.